Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is Strictly Confidential. Hey, Asher, how's your week been? My week has been... (laughs) (laughs) It's time! It's time for the Coliseum of Christmas! I gave a long pause for you to interrupt me because I knew <laughs> I was like, I better not get say anything personal. It's time to dive back into the Coliseum of Christmas. Let me see some hands for the people who are excited. I'm seeing lots of hands go up. I'm seeing lots of hands, and this ain't even a live show, so I'm scared. This week is the final four, and the last four contestants, if you've been listening, you know. And if you've been bad, you don't. But the last four contestants are in the Western Conference. We've got a matchup between Mrs. Claus and Krampus, the dark counterpart to her husband. And in the Eastern Conference, we've got Blitz and the Reindeer versus Martin Short as Jack Frost in the Santa Claus 2 <laughs> for three. And I actually, just to clarify, fact-checked that for last week's episode because I realized I've never seen the Santa Claus 3 and I could be very wrong. I think that that is not really an issue. I don't think that anybody who was in the Santa Claus 3 has seen the Santa Claus 3, so I don't think that's a problem. Our first matchup is Mrs. Claus versus Krampus. We've got the beautiful, bodacious leader of this household, especially now that Santa's dead, versus the demonic, uh, I guess, Santa. I don't know. Demon. The demonic Santa? Demonic goat Santa. The physical embodiment of winter depression, the Krampus. Okay, we are not going to just take things on surface level because that would not even be a fight. We have a sweet old lady versus a eight foot demon, and then they are supposed to attack each other. And I feel like there is a logical conclusion to that outside of the realm of Christmas magic. I think we also have... So far, given Mrs. Claus much more than the typical, ah, she's a sweet old lady vibe. She, remember, we talked about how this lady, before Santa was dead even, took care of a full household 364 days of the year. Yeah, I mean, the sweet old lady thing is just a facade. Like, that's propaganda at best. That's how she's depicted in storybooks. That's not who she is. And, remember, she's, like, Krampus... Krampus is always in a rageful, spiteful state because he is the Dark Lord of Christmas. But Mrs. Claus now has a fresh rage because just two weeks ago, her husband was murdered by a snowman that didn't even make it to the third round. So we need to recognize that, yes, Krampus has a constant state of fiery rage. Mrs. Claus has a fresh anger, too. The fresh anger of an elder god. Now, with the Krampus, we know that he has the ability to pull children down to hell. And that's pretty much uh, the that's the KO punch. That's the super move. But if we're breaking it down into like like a video game style rule and like a video game style move or something like imagine if this was some side of sort of turn based RPG. I don't think pulling a child down to hell is going to hurt Mrs. Claus that much. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that it seems as though the Krampus being a agent of punishment for naughty children i don't think he has the ability or the authority to do that unless you are a child who's been naughty and mrs claus is neither but what i think the krampus does have is the ability to whip 
with his stack of sticks. I think he could do that to anybody. Still has physical attacks that can be used on just about anyone. And I think that's given as a good example based on what we talked about last week. Listen to our Krampus episode and talked about how the people during Krampus not would actually run around and whip people in. uh, It's not Germany, but what's the other one? Russia. Now it's similar to Germany. (laughs) Austria. Austria. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You knew what I was talking about. You got there. But yeah, they would go around whipping people. And I think that that's something based on the actual Krampus if we're following this narrative. So what does Mrs. Claus have in her tool belt? That's what I want to know, because in the past few victories, we've pointed out that she's very sturdy, practically immortal, but the wins have come from her essentially demoralizing her opponent or using her position of power. In this case, I don't think the Krampus really cares who she is or where she comes from, and I don't know what Mrs. Claus is going to do to actually get Krampus down. I imagine Mrs. Claus has a sword. (laughs) Okay. I think that once you put a weapon in Mrs. Claus's hands, like that's a bloodbath, Mrs. Claus hands down. Is there any literature that would show that she has like a, like an AR-15 or something or like, uh, like nunchucks? Well, I mean, think about the amount of product that is being produced in the North Pole every year. She has access to whatever materials she needs. How many, how many children a year do you think Santa gives nunchucks to? At least a couple, okay? I don't, at probably least not a, lot, a couple. And but I at least bet, a few. So, okay. I think Santa, I think Mrs. Claus deserves and is uh, well, well versed in nunchuck strategy. And here's my explanation for this. The whole Christmas system, right, is good kids get what they want, bad kids get coal. Right. And I imagine that goes kind of all the way up until Christmas Day. That's when those rules, like those balances can be shifted, right? Yeah, you can make up for a whole year of naughtiness with one kind act. And I bet the elves are working on gifts for at least a couple months. I wouldn't be surprised if the kids that are promised nunchucks are also the kids that are going to mess up the night before Christmas and not end up getting those nunchucks. Oh, there's a surplus. So what I'm saying is the North Pole... Other than being the household for these elves and the household for Santa and, well, not anymore, may you rest in peace, and all of this is also a warehouse of spare nunchucks. I'm with you. Picturing Mrs. Claus coming out of the side of a coliseum spinning two sets of nunchucks is the funniest vision I can think of. And I think when you see that, Krampus just calls it. I think that's a white flag. I think I think we got to go with uh, with this. With uh, Mrs. Claus on this round. Yeah, we have to. I mean, at this stage, weaponry, firearms, it's all on the table. All right. So in the Eastern Conference, we have Blitz and the Reindeer versus Martin Short as Jack Frost in the Santa Claus 3. Okay, it's specifically being Martin Short is a new addition. Are you opposed to it, though? No. Because I wanted this to be a little bit more fair, because if it was just the story of Jack Frost versus Blitz and the Reindeer... Homie's just going to freeze that mofo to death. Yeah. Returning to video game terms, making something into Martin Short is definitely the biggest nerf possible. I mean, they did it to the Hobbit movie series, and that's what I mean, made that I series. Mean, I mean, have any of you guys seen that? I mean, you <laughs> I seen mean, that movie? I mean, the joke writes itself. The joke writes itself. We don't need to. <laughs> Rudolph and Blitzen, they have the ability to fly, and they are beautiful muscular creatures 
I don't really know what they have beyond that. Yeah, they're just fast physical beasts is all they really are. Whereas Jack Frost isn't fast or physical per se, but Martin Short's got the f- like magical freezing powers, and that's what made him beat the Grinch last week. Yeah, although the reason the Grinch lost is that he had the physical capabilities of taking care of Jack Frost, but he just couldn't get in because he's pretty portly, he's definitely slow, not the greatest reach. Blitzen can definitely get in. I think if he puts his head down and then charges at full speed into Jack Frost's gut, I think that might be a, a KO right there. I think that's a one-hit knockout. I, I see your point, but I also see Jack Frost has got to be pretty clever. I mean, Martin Short's done quite a bit, and like he's got to be pretty smart about this. And remember, they're in a coliseum, so what I'm thinking is if I'm Jack Frost, I'm not aiming to freeze... Blitzen, I'm aiming to freeze the ground Blitzen's running on. Oh, and those little hooves slide right into the Colosseum all over the place. And if that's the case, I'm picking Jack Frost nine times out of ten. So you see Jack Frost, aka Martin Short, as being the superior strategist against this, let's be honest, only slightly above average intelligence reindeer. And since, like the NBA and every season of The Bachelor, this whole thing is rigged, I would like to point out that next week we want to put the best against the best, right? We want to put the best of the West against the best of the East. I think the best battle there is going to be Mrs. Claus versus Jack Frost. And we're putting this uh, on pay-per-view, so we want we want as many views as possible. I'm going Jack Frost. Yeah, and if it's not Jack Frost, we're going to pay Blitzen to take a dive. Tune in next week, Christmas Eve, for our special bonus episode where we talk very, very in-depth about how this battle ends. We've largely been able to rely on our instincts to conclude the outcomes of these battles. Now we're going to do exhaustive research to make sure that we know who the ultimate champion of Christmas is in the Christmas Coliseum. Okay, pause for a sec. Do we want to do intensive research and and record this on Tuesday instead? No, of course we're not going to do research. Are you kidding? Those front row seat tickets for the Coliseum kind of left a hole in your pocket. Those are not cheap. How would you like to make a little extra money on the side? Money's tight. Times are tough. I can help you make a little bit of extra cash on the side working from home. And the product practically sells itself. People love it. But uh, we don't use traditional marketing systems. We actually sell from peer to peer. And uh, all you have to do is find a distributor and they contact their distributor and they contact their distributor and it goes up to the top. Uh, We're talking about pyramid schemes today. Now, pyramid schemes, not exactly paranormal. And I know that we aren't strictly paranormal, but around pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes, there is absolutely hidden information that organizations are trying to prevent you from knowing. And I think that fits in very well with the theme of our show of enlightening our listeners to hidden truths. Huge corporations that have existed for a long time exploit this system, and they are desperate to mask the underlying faults. Pyramid schemes are always covered with lies and distractions and empty to promises. divert your attention away from the inherent flaw of the structure. And anyone can fall for these. I think before we even get into it and explain how they work, most people have a general idea of what a pyramid scheme is. 
And they may even know a friend or family member who has approached them about a product that they're selling that even if you can't put your finger on it, it just doesn't sit right. It seems either too good to be true or it's too bizarre that this person is trying to push a product on you. And everybody has those stories too. I, I went to a I went to a meetup that was like everybody. There are so many different kinds of pyramid schemes that are all so well ready, like perfectly built for each individual person. Because the whole goal is like, let's make you this promise you can't resist. Yeah. And so like I went to one where it was like in three months, you could have a fully paid off brand new Jeep Wrangler. And I was like, I know this is a pyramid scheme, but I, I want a Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they you're they they've been around long enough. There's, these pyramid schemes have, been, have spent so much time in development that, like you said, there's a flavor for every individual. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, to fully understand a pyramid scheme and how they work, we have to jump over to the Ponzi scheme, which is a little bit different, but I think you'll see that the flaws in the structure are very similar, and they use a very similar type of deception. Okay. Now, you've heard of Ponzi, correct, Jackson? Yeah. He's basically synonymous with fraud, and he's the infamous con man. But a lot of people don't actually know who the guy was or what his scheme was, how he got caught, and how to spot the variations of Ponzi schemes that exist today. So Charles Ponzi, born in 1882 in Italy, but he immigrated to the United States when he was a teenager, and he worked really low-paying jobs, very minimal skill, but he had a really hard time holding down even that because he kept stealing from his employers and getting caught. So from the get-go as a teenager, not necessarily the most upstanding guy. He moves to Canada and actually does a little bit of jail time there. Then he goes back to the United States and he comes across a scheme that starts to make him a little bit of money. And it's a lot easier than stealing money from your employer while you're washing dishes. He found an exploit in the postal system. Because at the time, it was really common for letters that are sent abroad to include a thing called an international reply coupon. Sending a letter, that ain't free. Especially if you're sending it overseas, that can get expensive. And it can be kind of a burden to receive a letter and then think, oh, now I have to pay for the postage to respond. So you're almost sending someone a burden to have to pay for the response. To get around this, there are these vouchers that you can mail with your letter that can be an exchange for postage. Okay, well, that's that makes sense. Nothing suspicious there. The thing is, there is a an, an exploit that is legal called an arbitrage, which is basically, an arbitrage, I learned, is basically just exploiting the difference in the value of currency in different countries and swapping things around until you make a profit. So okay. you only have to purchase postal reply coupons on the cheap in Italy, send them back to the U.S., and you can swap those coupons for stamps and then just sell the stamps. So how is this dirty? It's not. It's totally legal. It doesn't necessarily, it's hard to do on a large scale, and it doesn't net you a lot of profit. And it takes, I mean, he's having to coordinate with family members in Italy to make this happen in the first place. But he's making a decent amount of money doing this. It doesn't sound like it actually hurts anybody either. Yeah, he's just gaming the system in a way that actually doesn't end up hurting anyone, at least not directly. 
Unfortunately, this is coming from Mental Floss, this phrasing specifically, whatever defect made Ponzi steal from his employers and pass bad checks prompted him to get greedy here too. This is where he almost stumbled into the Ponzi scheme. This is a system that had existed for a few years, but no one had ever reached the level of success that Ponzi is about to. This was a thing that had happened before it was the Ponzi scheme. Yes, but but it was more theoretical. Now, the way a Ponzi scheme works, I'm just going to break this down in my own words, is that you have a business, legitimate or otherwise, and you get an investor to invest in that business, usually through your own personal charm and convincing them that it's going to be a very high yield, high return investment. You take that money and put it away for yourself. The next time you get an investor, they invest a large sum of money and you use a portion of their money to pay off your first investor. It's just stacking on top of that, right? If the initial investor is seeing big returns, they have a lot of reason to keep that money in the system. And that's usually what keeps a Ponzi system, a Ponzi scheme going in perpetuity. And even if the person wants to actually receive that return, It's only a percentage of what they put in. So you can easily afford to shave that percent off the top of what you've made and give it back to them. Pretty wild. So Ponzi sort of transitioned into this scheme naturally. He had a business, it was pretty successful, and he realized that he could make a lot more money convincing other people to invest in that business. So he's basically like taking money from five different sources as investment and then using those investments to convince five new sources to invest and paying back first five sources with new five sources monies and moving forward from there. And he made it juicy. He started recruiting investors with the promise that they would get 50% returns in a few days. Definitely fits within the category of too good to be true. Because if you are getting a return on your investment that's in the double digits at all, that's almost unheard of. Especially in a few days. Ponzi was very charming and very, very good with people. Not a financial wizard, just knew how to work people. And he was able to convince them with mumbo jumbo about these coupons. Investors didn't really care. They just saw the huge returns. They were putting money in and they were getting money out. At least that's what they thought. So how does this end? And also, actually, other question first. When was this happening? Like around what years? This would be like 1903. It is over 100 years ago, but it's definitely not. It's not like 1600s. They were like handing him a bag of gold coins and he would. (laughs) No, this is relatively modern in the uh, because a lot of the principles that are used in cons have existed for millennia. Right. I mean, it's. It's just greed and not really caring how it affects other people. And again, what makes Ponzi the one who is sort of synonymous with this scheme, even though it's a principle that had been around before and has definitely been used since, is the widespread attention and massive success. At his peak, and remember, this is early 1900s money, at his peak, he was making $250,000 a day. How does this end for him? Because at some point, Doesn't he run out of places to invest from or doesn't he have to pay off all of these investors? This is why it's important to know that he kind of transitioned into a Ponzi scheme. Of course, I don't know what he called it back then. 
from a legitimate business because there really isn't a way for this to end well. On the smaller scale, the person who is operating this scheme just vanishes with the money. Ponzi, on the other hand, had so many investors that he began to receive national fame. So there was no vanishing into the night with the money. Okay, because I'm imagining this as like, I my car broke down and somebody is towing it, but to tow it, all they did is tied a chain from their car to the front of my car and started driving. When that car, <laughs> when that car stops, my car is completely ruined. Yeah, something like that. It has to continue. If it stops swimming, it dies. Is that, about, is that like a miss? That's like a incorrect fact about sharks or something, right? It would have been really cool if that was the Snopes I brought today. That would have been sweet. But yeah, so like at some point this has to end. So how does it end for, for Ponzi? Does he just die? Unfortunately, even though he got to enjoy the absolute height of luxury, including gold-encrusted canes and expensive cigars on the daily... He didn't get to live his entire life at this level of excess wealth. Clarence Barron, owner of the Wall Street Journal, began to sniff around. He conceded that there was probably a way for a person to make a small amount of cash on the quick with a postal reply coupon scheme, and they could do it legally. But for Ponzi to be making the amount of money that he was making, about 160 million coupons would need to be in circulation to support the business. And there were only 27,000 postal reply coupons in existence in, on the planet. And things only got worse when the Postal Service reported that there was not a huge flow of coupons from one country to another, even within that 27,000. Wow. Again, Ponzi was no financial genius. He was just good with people. Whenever he was confronted directly from his investors, he would just babble on about coupons and moving money around and would just make up stuff. But they liked him so much as a person, they're willing to believe whatever he said. Yeah. Eventually, though, it was his fame and notoriety that caused him to fall apart. What happens? Tell me more. Well, it doesn't end super well for Ponzi. He gets charged with six, I think it was 68 accounts of fraud, serves a few years. He jumps bail, starts more cons in Texas, gets deported back to Italy, dies in abject poverty, and is buried in a pauper's grave. So he ends up being a poor, poor poor man yes in a poetic fashion he ends up dying penniless so what does an actual ponzi scheme look like today i'm glad you asked because this is not just early 1900s people are gullible and they'll put their money wherever these continue to be successful if they can stay small all you really need to be able to fall into a Ponzi scheme is have an investment that promises high returns that uses a system that you don't really understand. A way that it shows up a lot today is cryptocurrency. You have someone who says that they have a amazing cheat of the system with cryptocurrency. You don't really understand how cryptocurrency works. Blockchain, uh, sure, money, but that's not regulated by the government. That sounds good. You don't really know how the money is being moved around, but you are seeing big returns on your investment. That's the perfect conditions for a modern day Ponzi scheme. And it has already happened several times. With a Ponzi scheme based around cryptocurrencies like that, it's not even your typical investment. It's not like I'm trying to open this startup and I need like upfront money for it. It's just I'm converting your money into a different kind of money and giving you more of the first kind of money back. Yeah. Which, 
obviously it's not that simple, but breaking it down to that kind of scheme makes it look like they're just trying to test to see how dumb you can be with it. You know what I mean? They're trying to test to see like, this is obviously not going to work like this. So we're going to break it down to the bare essentials and see if you still fall for it. Well, the thing is, every Ponzi scheme and pyramid scheme can be broken down to simple terms, and that's where you find the flaw. Ponzi basically had a smokescreen of mumbo-jumbo about mail coupons that people didn't understand. But when you break it down to its simple terms, then the problem becomes pretty evident. So does this actually end up being bad for the first couple investors? In a Ponzi scheme, only Ponzi wins. The operator is the only one who makes off with any cash if he doesn't get caught. Because the investor, once they put their money in, they may never see that again. That's already hidden under the mattress of the operator. They're just seeing a portion of it back to convince them that everything's okay. Because if everyone tries to pull their money out, suddenly their money's not there. That makes sense. Now, a lot of us are much more familiar with the Ponzi scheme's cousin, the pyramid scheme, because the structure is built in a way that's much more infectious. It spreads like a virus and infects even people we love and trust. They're not completely synonymous, but Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes use a lot of the same principles to deceive people. And it seems like a lot of the same techniques of convincing you that this thing is going to be easy and going to be something you're going to make profit from quickly. The pyramid scheme has two distinct advantages over the Ponzi scheme. One being that it is working with a product that can mask the illegitimate movement of money. Two, it is using social networks that other people have built and exploiting them. But people are already familiar with these companies. Some of these are famously pyramid schemes, but we have LuLaRoe, Mary Kay, Success University, Forever Living Products, Advocare, Amway, Avon Products, Beachbody, Discovery Toys, Herbalife, and the list goes on and on and on. There are a lot of these. And the frustrating thing is a lot of them can give you really good stuff too. Certainly. No, and that's that's why these the the term is multi-level marketing, not pyramid scheme. But that's one of the reasons that they have allowed to exist in perpetuity is that they are buying and selling an actual product that people value. The problem is that people are valuing it for the wrong reasons. Here's the red flags to look for, actually. The red flags for a pyramid scheme. Promise of a large monthly income working from home. A requirement to invest your own money to participate. Strong emphasis on recruiting, that's important. Complex commission structure, lacking any outside retail sales, and most importantly, too good to be true. And I think for me, what's so, what's so appealing, not appealing, but so interesting about these is how much it's genuinely just the multi-level element of it. Like, you mean I can, once you enlist me and five of my friends, I can enlist five more people and move up to your level? And then we can move from there by spreading out more and more selling this product. It becomes almost like an achievement system of pride. Yeah, well, it uses both pride and shame. But like you said, you have, there can be really good products. That's not even the point. Because the products, again, these are the smokescreen that covers the flaw in the system. 
if you can convince people that the product is valuable enough that people are just going to eat it up, then it's really easy to prey on aspiring entrepreneurs and say, hey, you should buy stock of this product that you can then turn around and sell to your friends and family. Problem is, you're not working as a salesman for the company. You are paying them for the product. Often, you have to pay a lot to actually reach the level of being a distributor. Now you have tons and tons of this crap that you've already sunk a lot of money into. So you had better sell it to recoup your costs. And that usually ends up with the exploitation of friends and family. That may be successful at first, but once those social connections dry up and you just have a ton of product that you've already sunk a lot of money into, this is where things get really sinister. You can make a lot more money recruiting other people than you can selling the product. And what always happens is that the distributors and the recruitment of other distributors is the major source of income and cash flow. Essentially, the buyer is the product. So it is very similar to a Ponzi scheme in that all you're doing is convincing more people to join this thing to make up for you joining this thing. Right. You are having to invest into something that is paying off the last person who invested. And the hard thing about both of these kinds of schemes is getting out. Exactly. And that's that's why they spread. You set them up, watch them fall. Because once someone has bought into it and sunk a ton of money, they have a lot of motivation and incentive to abuse their own connections to recoup those costs. The best way to do it is to sucker someone else into buying in. And then the process just continues and continues until someone is left with a ton of shit they can't do anything with. And that's where the losers are. And those usually only happen a few rungs down below the top of the pyramid. Hmm. That's crazy. So what's the lesson here? I guess the ultimate lesson is that when you hear of a business opportunity that's too good to be true, it probably is. And whenever you're recruited, people who are recruited into these MLMs, multi-level marketing, it's not just some greasy salesman because people are suspicious of that. It's usually a relative or a friend that you already trust who may not even know that they're a part of a pyramid scheme. My friends uh, got a book from one of their friends who is involved in a multi-level marketing company thing. Uh, I was trying as hard as I could not to say pyramid scheme there, but a a pyramid scheme. And he gave them a book written by the founder of the company. And like 20 pages in, there was a diagram of the company's structure and it was in a pyramid. (laughs) I mean, they, they all, like I said, the structure is always the same. Person at the top is making all the money. This comes from chapter seven of John Taylor's, uh, John Taylor's paper, The Case Against Multilever Marketing. Chapter seven, MLM's abysmal numbers. Of the 350 MLM's I have analyzed, for which a complete compensation plan was available, 100% of them are recruitment driven and top weighted. In other words, the vast majority of commissions paid, they go to a tiny percentage at the top at the expense of the revolving door of recruits, 99% of whom lose money. Failure and loss rates for MLMs are not comparable with legitimate small businesses, which have been found to be profitable for 39% over the lifetime of the business, whereas less than 1% of MLM participants profit, which makes gambling look like a safe bet in comparison. Up until a couple years ago, I didn't notice these things becoming big. And I don't know if that was just me becoming more aware of what's going on or me or them starting to become more common as like social media and stuff became more common. You got it right there. 
these have seen a dramatic increase in popularity with the introduction of social media becoming a greater part of people's lives in the older demographic. I'm pretty passionate about it, if you can't tell. So I, I, I apologize that I skipped out on the funny ha-has, but this is something that is so frustrating because my own friends have fallen for these, and they're not stupid. And for me, it's at least an, it's a noble cause to attempt to enlighten more people that there is a dark side to these MLMs, and if you even hear multi-level marketing, that's a red flag. One thing that's so good about what we're doing here is that with stuff like this, it is good to be, learn as much as you can about it. Neither of us are experts and neither of us are claiming to be experts. But just knowing more about this is what can keep you from falling into that kind of trap. I feel like I've contributed to society today. That feels nice. Would you like to hear the tweet of the week before we dive into the, sn the slopes? Yes, I've been serious for way too long. Let's get a tweet. All right. Our tweet of the week comes from... At Captain Calvis, that's Captain K-A-L-V-I-S, and they said, Remember when we used to think light-up shoes made us run fast? Haha, <laughs> kids are so f***ing dumb. Anyway, so yeah, if you just leave the, this crystal in the moonlight, you won't get sick ever. <laughs> you could... It's getting pretty uh, nippy in here. Do we want to hit the snopes? <laughs> yeah, let's go. I need, to, I need to move a little bit to warm up. So today's Hit the Snopes is actually from a different source. It's from LiveScience.com. And the question we're answering today is, must sharks keep swimming to stay alive? <laughs> okay, I'm glad that I didn't just make that up earlier. I'm glad that that's something that exists because that would be the most buck wild thing to pull out of nowhere. That would be the kind of thing that you had dreamed and thought, somebody had to tell me this because my imagination can't make up dumb facts like that, right? This this. Snopes question has a little bit more of a tricky answer than you'd expect. There are actually sharks that must constantly swim or they will drown. No way. Most sharks aren't like this, but due to some unfortunate evolutionary choices, they are like this. Let me break it down a little bit. No like, way. Like other fish, sharks breathe through their gills, but there are two ways that sharks do that. Some of that is through buccal pumping. I don't know if it's buccal or buccal, but it comes from the name of the mouth muscles that actively draw water into the mouth and over the gills, which allows the sharks to respire while remaining still. It allows them to breathe while they're not swimming. These sharks also have openings behind their eyes that allow the, the shark to pull in water while being buried under sand. So this is all like how they're able to breathe while moving, mostly through this uh, buccal pumping. Cool. Other sharks use something called ram ventilation. That is, they basically ventilate their gills by swimming very fast with their mouths open. <laughs> Imagine a toddler running through the rain because they're thirsty with their mouth open. It's like that. <laughs> and that is an actual way that sharks will breathe in air and water, I guess. This is mostly, most sharks throughout time can switch between buccal pumping and ram ventilation depending on how quickly they're swimming like the tiger shark but there are sharks that have lost the ability for buccal pumping and these are called obligate ram ventilators sharks from this group would actually die from the lack of oxygen if they stopped swimming checkmate atheist there's no way evolution is true and these things exist 
Well, you don't this- get to this point. There's no system in place other than a god who has a sense of humor. <laughs> that a, a god that just wants to ruin a shark. That would cause this to happen naturally. There's no advantage for having to always be... You having to cram oxygen down your throat <laughs> by swimming quick. <laughs> I think... I think you're probably breaking it down a little bit too simply there, but because I'm sure there are advantages to having to do that. Like, I'm sure there were disadvantages to the buccal pumping system, but there are obviously going to be evolutionary steps that don't step in the exact right direction. And then the creatures that stepped in that direction die off. Right. Yeah. But the, the crazy thing here is that it's not like tiger sharks are sharks that can breathe both ways. These obligate ram ventilators include stuff like great white sharks. Really? Like, it's not just the ones you haven't heard very much about. It's stuff like great... It's not great, just weird deep sea creatures. Yeah. It's stuff like uh, the great white sharks and mako sharks do this too. Dang, and those are top tier sharks. Yeah, those are the ones you, would, you could name. Okay, so they just don't have to inhale oxygen very often, right? Do they, do they not sleep? Do they swim while they sleep? I think they must move while they sleep. That's crazy. But yeah, that's our Hit the Snopes for today. You want to tell people about our dope music? Yeah, if you want to have a better use of your funds, your liquid cash, go ahead and pick up a copy of Burden of Proof by Glen Merle. On that album, there's a song called Threadbare. That's our theme song and our outro music. Also want to thank Connor Voigt for Hit the Snopes jingle. We really enjoy that one. That was a gift from him to the show. Yeah, and then if you wanna if you wanna follow us on our social media, we will be on. I mean, we are on at Strictly Confidential Show on Instagram, and our Twitter is S Confident Show because it requires fewer characters. But and then if you want to, we'll be post we post on there pretty frequently. Talk about what's coming on the show. Talk about what's happened on the show recently. What episodes you can go listen to, and it's just a good place to get information. Um, all of our links are there and everything. But if you're listening to this, you've found the show. So uh, <laughs> our email is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, anything you want us to talk about, any funny links or topics you would want to come and talk about on our show, just shoot us an email there. Like I said, it's strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. Be an interviewee. We'll interview you just like Jimmy Kimmel, just like the late night shows. Talk about what you are passionate about. Explain your deepest, darkest fears on live television. That's not us. That's Ellen. Oh, yeah. I'm still thinking about Ellen. But if you do want to be on the show, we would love to have you. Also, tell your best friend about this show. There's a lot of Christmas traveling coming up. If you're going to have to suffer through visiting the the in-laws, you might as well enjoy the drive. Why not play some Strictly Confidential? And as I always say, when you're moving, you might as well move with us. That's nice. When you're traveling, you might as well... Open up whatever podcast app you're opening up and play your family a couple episodes because a lot of the times your family likes what you like. Listen, you go to your friends and family, they trust you. You recruit them to come listen to our show. We pay you. Now you take that money and you pay them to get. So as always, I've been Jackson. (laughs) And I've been Asher. And you've been listening to Strictly Confidential. And until next time, stay scheming. (laughs) 